And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. The Akadekagonagon Files. Featuring Thomas DJ. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are as part of the uh, international exchange system here at Two True Freaks. Once again, I'm Tom DJ, and I'm standing, sitting here with my dear, dear friend, Mr. Andrew Leyland. Hello, everyone. And uh, once again, Andrew and I were having a discussion through social media, and we just said, well, this should be a, con- a conversation we record for posterity. Yeah, because social media has to be good for something, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it does. Um... <laughs> Other than, of course, uh, fomenting fascism. But that's neither here nor there. So so welcome to... Originally, we were going to call it, since the last two specials Andrew and I did were called Craigslist and Doctor's Orders. We were going to call it Spider's Web. But because of the... One of the aspects of the particular era of this character we'll be talking about, although there'll be a lot of ranting about other, other errors... Um, we decided to go with Peter Parker is a jerk. But he's a likable jerk. Yes, that's... You You can be a jerk. You, your hero can be... Have very unlikable tendencies and still be someone you want to watch. Well, that's... that's I think that's one of the things that made him stand out from the beginning. He wasn't a squirt hero who always did the right thing. That the... The example I always point to is is the early one. I think it's issue five, where Flash Thompson is kidnapped by Doctor Doom, who thinks that he's kidnapped Spider-Man. And Peter has just this wonderful moment where he goes, I just have to sit back and do nothing. And the guy who's made my high school life a living hell is out of my hair. And then he instantly realises, no, I can't do that. It's not the right thing to do. Me not doing something has led me down the path that I am on. But the fact that he has that moment where, where he thinks, I, if I do nothing, all my problems go away. And then he thinks, no, I can't do that. That's not right. That's Peter Parker. Batman wouldn't do that. Or certainly not the Batman, Batman of the 60s. Oh, by the way, happy Batrock Day. Yes, thank you. Uh, he, he Forget about Batman. Fuck about Batman. Anyone. It's Batrock. Yeah, this Day. this is not about this is not about him. And Superman wouldn't do that. But Peter, he has that little moment of humanity where he's like, eh, I mean, it's, I wouldn't be killing him. Um, I think Derek Ferguson, my good friend, who we've referenced many times. Hello, Derek. Hello, Derek. Um, has a theory about why Spider-Man is so popular that I, I really like, which is the idea that because he wears a full mask, 
Mm. You can literally project anybody into that. Yeah, Paul Jenkins did a really lovely little story about this African-American kid who essentially that was the premise of the story. He idolised Spider-Man because he didn't know who was under the mask. And the end of the story has the kid imagining the guy takes the mask off and he's an African-American. And that was a really nice little nod to the idea that because he is completely covered, he could be anybody under the mask. Right. But it, it took J. Michael Straczynski to point out to me something I'd never considered. He would have a New York accent. Okay, That well, that's why... I think New York City is an integral part of Spider-Man as a whole. Yes. You could not have a you could not have Spider-Man move to oh I don't know. They, they, they Thor moved to Chicago for a couple issues, right? Mm. Or or San Francisco, which seems to be the place of choice that Matt Murdock goes to cry. Yeah, Daredevil went to San Francisco, didn't he? Yes. Um Spider-Man is inherently a New York figure, uh, which is, I guess, one of the reasons why the Dan Slott stuff does not work for me at all. Yeah, because post-Superior, suddenly he's a globe-trotting Bruce Wayne-esque captain of industry. I mean, he's not very good at it. Yeah. But then, you know what the thing is? Is that this, ever since that revamp the the John Byrne Howard Mackey revamp they somebody has it in their heads that spider that Peter Parker should become this major industrial scientific figure and i think that takes away something valuable from him which is his everyman status yeah, it's it's one of the things I've said this. I mean, I know primarily we're going to discuss the Bronze Age. Yes, but I've I've long said that he ends for me with Volume One, the Gathering of the Five, which is an awful story. Oh God, yes. But the Gathering of the Five does not end as the comics ended. It ends as the slightly altered retelling that Tom DeFalco told. In Spider-Man, in Spider-Girl, sorry, ends. And then in my head canon, it goes straight into 15 years later and it's Mayday Parker's story. And Peter and Murray Jane have packed it all in and they're just normal, everyday people. And Peter essentially is Barry Allen at that point. He works as a forensic scientist in the police force, so he's still using his science stuff, but he's not doing something so outlandish that he's no longer identifiable. And that, that's my headcanon until Dan Slott ruined it by killing Peter off in that reality, in one of his Spider-Verse crossovers. Okay. And you're like, cheers, Dan. And why did you do that? Oh, well, we did it to replace it with the Renew, Renew Your Vows version of Peter and Mary Jane in the future with a daughter. Okay, so you got rid of a really good, perfectly serviceable... Very telling of that story, yeah, to replace it with your cloned copy that wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes perfect sense to me. All right, right. But um, but basically, th- this whole started because you dropped the name Sissy Ironwood on one of your podcasts. Yeah, I, I recently covered Denny O'Neill's run uh, after Denny died. And I, I, I thought that would be a good place to try an experiment, which was a daily podcast. Mm-hmm. It was a good experiment. I will never do it again. All right. 
Um, and, by the way, do you think that Sissy Ironwood was kind of Chris Claremont's joke towards uh, Eclipse editor Catherine Ironwood? Oh, it may have been. Catherine Wood. Yes. That's how she spelt it, wasn't it, with a Y? Yeah. yeah, it may have been. Yeah, I'd never really considered that. Especially seeing as no one else seemed to give a toss about Chrissy Ironwood. <laughs> Except for you and Sissy me and Chris Ironwood. Claremont. And Chris Claremont, yeah. So she never became anything other than a stopgap girlfriend. And even then, I think she was only ever in Marvel Team-Up. Yeah. Was she I don't remember on being screen in... at any time? I, I did. I think we saw her once or twice... And I'm pretty sure she's just like a Gwen Stacy clone. She's leggy and blonde. I don't recall her having anything in the way of a personality. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd be struggling to think of anything. I mean, I honestly, I don't even remember where he met her. <laughs> I, I always assumed remember. he was a fellow student, but... Yeah, she must, she must have been something like that. I mean, if we just do a quick Google... Apparently she was Priscilla Ironwood. Oh, okay. And she, she first appears in uh, Marvel Team-Up issue 80. So, yeah, she was only in Team-Up. Okay. And whatever happened to her, I don't know. She did cross over to the X-Men. So, yeah, she must have been Chris Claremont's baby. Right. So, and of course, after, after Sissy, we get, of course, Deborah Whitman, who, as much as I don't like Peter David, I approve of him giving her a closure. Yes, he, it took uh, the 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 Deborah Whitwood yes. story is just one of the low points in Peter Parker's life. He treats her like shit mm-hmm. inevitably through every single appearance of uh, once he meets her. She was the dean's secretary when Peter was a teaching assistant, and he treats her awfully. And she's this this mousy, quiet creature who's a little bit like he was when he was in sky school and he never quite seems to realize that so he treats her like garbage but bill mantle writes her out by having peter convince her that she's mentally ill <sighs> and that uh, him being spider-man cannot possibly be the truth and must be a delusion of hers and then she leaves and it takes peter david to have her write a tell-all memoir in the wake of the risible civil war <sighs> where Peter foolishly reveals his identity to the world for reasons of plot, not mm-hmm. reasons of decent character motivation. And then she comes back. And even then, Peter David writes her as, I didn't really want to write this as a tell-all memoir. Essentially, my editor rewrote it to be more salacious. Mm-hmm. I, I was just a little bit pissed off over what you did to me. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, no, he... The thing is, you look at... Peter's romantic life, and yeah, he is a jerk. Yes, he's frequently a jerk to all of his lovers. But by the same token, so is Murray Jane, if you believe the retcon that she knew from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Now, that that can't possibly be true. There is too many contradictory elements in different stories that she didn't know. Most most obviously, the one I, again, I always point to is the Ned Leeds-Betty Brandt wedding, where Peter disappears, Spider-Man appears, and in front of everyone, Murray Jane says, hey, has anyone seen Peter? And you're <laughs> like, if she knows 
that he's Spider-Man. That's a dick move, MJ. <laughs> now, when we originally got the story that Murray J knew he was Peter Parker, or knew that Spider-Man was, was Peter Parker, Tom DeFalco, who fleshed out Murray Jane's backstory, left it ambiguous as to where she could have found out. Right. Whereas we um, have... Was it Jerry John Conway, or Kirk Busiak who decided that Jer- it was Jerry Conway. Jerry oh. Conway's Parallel Lives graphic novel. Okay, he established that she knew from the night of Amazing Fantasy fifteen where Ben Parker gets killed, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Having reread them all and done them all as like I've mm-hmm. been covering lots of it, it makes much more sense to me that she slowly starts to piece it to- together post Gwen's death when they start dating. Right. So that that covers that Ned Leeds gaff because mm-hmm. she may not necessarily know for certain. Mm-hmm. But I think she puts it together around the time that Bart Hamilton becomes the Green Goblin. And that would explain why she turns down his proposal a couple of issues later. Because she now knows he's Spider-Man and Murray Jane's all about the, oh, no, that's too deep for me. Yeah. But I have never been of the opinion she's his soulmate either. Mm -hmm. I think she was there and he was there at a time they both needed somebody in the wake of Gwen's death. You look at those those issues immediately after the event. Yeah. (laughs) Which is the beginning of the Bronze Age of comics. And... You realize, because, you know, I was buying them when they were coming out as a little kid, because mm-hmm. I'm a really old fucker, and it seemed to me as a kid that it took a while, but no, he hooks up with her within, like, what, about three or four months of issues. Well, it's, it's more, it's, I don't know that he hooks up with her so much as she spends a lot of time with him. And it's never really explored properly because Jerry Conway was only a young guy when he was writing mm-hmm. them. But reading between the lines and subsequent retcons and stuff, you can read into it. Murray Jane was shocked by the death of somebody who was so young. Yeah. And that forced her into a different place from where she had been. And all, all credit to Jerry Conway. He took her from being this slightly brainless bimbo who had a thing for Peter and was insanely jealous of Gwen. Do not believe the retcons that say Gwen and Murray Jane were best pals. No. They were not. And it made her a more viable three-dimensional character. And the two of them helped each other through this tough time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wouldn't be bothered if we'd never seen her again after she left there. Roger Stern treated her the best way post mm-hmm. them split it up. He treated her as the ex-girlfriend who comes back into your life, completely screws your life up, <laughs> not intentionally, mm-hmm. and then leaves again. And that's how he treated the relationship. Right. And that's a valid way to go. And then Tom DeFalco brought her back and they were good friends. Mm-hmm. They weren't even dating when they got married. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, for all the, the bitching and moaning that Joe Quesada made about no one can identify with a married Spider-Man, I think actually the married Spider-Man was a, was a good time. I will defend the, the Michelini. Yes. Um, Farland slash Larson slash Bagley era. I wouldn't go as far as to defend the Bagley era. Well, the Bagley's were where the, the wheels come off. 
Yes. Yeah. By, by Michelini's own admission in Writers Talk About Spider-Man, that interview boot by Tom DeFalco, mm-hmm. he says, after Larson left, they got a new editor. And the new editor, I think it was Danny Fingeroff, kept uh-huh. throwing these ideas at him. The, the carnage came from him and... Oh. Um, Peter Parker's parents came from him mm-hmm. but that's all he would do he threw these ideas at him and didn't tell him where he wanted them to go so Michelini felt that he was writing somebody else's stories and he doesn't like his last year or so mm-hmm. on the book but certainly the McFarlane stuff is a lot of fun and Michelini being a professional writer mm-hmm. and not a douchebag he wasn't a fan of the marriage. He didn't want them to get married, but that was the status quo of the book when he inherited it. Mm-hmm. So he went, all right, how can I make this work? What can I do with it that's fun? And he does. He has a lot of fun with it. Yeah. No, but I... that is, that, technically, I think that's post-Bronze Age. I think the Bronze Age ends when Murray Jane marries Peter. Okay, okay. That's my so. personal cut-off. Get a bunch of Spider fans in a room and they won't agree. Okay. But I think that's the cut-off point, because at that point, everything's entering the grim and gritty. You've yeah. had Gang War, which was shit. You've had Spider-Man versus Wolverine, which was really grim. Then you get Craven's Last Hunt, which is really grim. Yeah. And then you get McFarlane coming on. So I think if you do the cut-off as the end of the Bronze Age being Peter, Mary, and Mary Jane, even though that's still not quite the 90s, mm-hmm. McFarlane coming on is essentially a whole new ball game. Because for the first time ever, we're not just slavishly following John Romita's model. McFarlane comes in and basically makes him a new character mm. in how he looks and how he moves and all of that stuff. I, I'm going to say something heretical here. Because I really like John Romita Sr. Doesn't everybody? I think he... I, I met him in 76 at one of the, the few Marvel cons. Mm. You remember those things. Lovely human being, great artist, but I think that the moment that Stan insisted he go on Spider-Man, there was a definite seismic change in how the character was portrayed and how his supporting supporting cast was portrayed, especially Gwen Stacy, who was an interesting character under Ditko and then just became a doll baby. Yeah, and under Ditko, she was a lot more snide, a lot more acerbic, and certainly smarter yes. than she would later be portrayed. Everyone forgets she is also a science student, mm-hmm. whereas Murray Jane's off doing theatre. Right. Murray Jane shouldn't be any of them. I've got this theory, right, that if they really want to do a Murray Jane comic, they should do a Murray Jane comic from Amazing Spider-Man 40. And they weave her appearances in Amazing Spider-Man. Because she's not in them all. Right. She disappears for issues at a time with her other life. Where she has a completely different set of friends. And is doing completely other things. And every now and again she'll pop by the coffee bean and go, Hi everyone, how yep. are you doing? Because the, it's quite clear to me, don't do Untold Tales of Spider-Man. You do Untold Tales of Murray Jane. <laughs> She she was living the 60s life. She yeah. was a theatre student. She was dancing in the evening at Club Hopper Go-Go or whatever those places were called. She clearly has a completely separate set of friends from her theatre class. Mm-hmm. Because when they show up for Harry after his overdose, she's got all these people in tow. And Peter's like, who the hell are these guys? <laughs> 
I want that. I want untold tales of Mary Jane that tells what Mary Jane was up to when she wasn't in Spider-Man, in between Amazing Spider-Man 14 and before Gwen dies. Yeah. Because after Gwen dies, that's when she really becomes a core supporting character right. member and in every issue. She's just like Harry's girlfriend up until then. She's not even she's not even that. Harry wishes <laughs> she was his girlfriend. Harry oh. Mary Jane strings poor Harry along mm-hmm. like yes. a marionette. <laughs> He's the, when she needs a lift, because he's got a car, and when she needs some money, because he's loaded. And as a way for her to get close to Peter, who for reasons that were never explained, she has a massive crush on. Mm -hmm. She doesn't give a shit about Flash Thompson. Right. There was never any indication Murray Gaines gave two rat's asses about Flash. He was there, he ogled her, and she was like, yeah, I like the attention. But she, there's never any indication she cared a whit about Flash. Mm-hmm. Gwen did. Gwen liked Flash a great deal. Murray Jane, Murray Jane could give a toss about Flash. <laughs> this sounds like we're, we're, we're doing Mary Jane assassination. But no, no, we're not. I, I genuinely love Mary Jane as a character. Yeah. But what I'm saying is there was a whole other side to her that we never saw. Right. And it took Jerry Conway to flesh that out once Gwen had died. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Gwen, we saw only the simpering side of her yeah. post-Ramita. We didn't see the acerbic, snide side that we saw under um steve ditko but mm. it's likely as well that they had to change something because ditko would have just made college like high school right but um yeah i can can i take a moment because most of the bronze age a large portion of the bronze age was drawn by an artist that people i think dog on and i don't like it why would they dog on him He's, he's magnificent. He is my Spider-Man artist. We're talking about Ross Andrew people. Because um, the thing I loved about Ross Andrew's Spider-Man is that he had that angular thing going. Mm. Where he was, also, he was also the first one to make New York part of the strip. Yes. And... I think I thought he was. I thought he was magnificent. I don't understand why people. I mean, I understand he's not photorealistic like people expect these days. Yeah, but his New York was. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, his New York City is the New York was more real and grounded under Ross Andrew than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I, I largely think that's. I know where everywhere in New York is through reading <laughs> Spider-Man comics. I've never been there. Oh, there were there were times when I'd open up an issue, and I'd see the splash. But go, I know where that is. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ross Andrew was famous, wasn't he? He would just wander around New York mm-hmm. with his camera, and he'd get in the elevator and go to rooftops, apparently, and just take different photos of different angles that he thought, yeah, that that's an interesting backdrop for Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And then he would use his own photos as photo reference. So he didn't slavishly trace porn like some artists you could mention. <laughs> he went out and took his own photos of New York City that he then used as his own reference in his own artwork. So it's, it's arguably under Andrew that New York became a real place. It's not that it's not real before that, with right. Demetra and Ditko. But that attention to detail, that suddenly Spider-Man's over Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. he's, he's on the ferry. There's an, an issue where he goes on the ferry over the... to, to, to Staten Island. Right. 
the the um the, the second or third Punisher appearance with the with the with Jigsaw's introduction, yeah, which takes yep. place on the at that point brand new uh, tramway, yeah. So there's all these places that, that Ross Andrews essentially gives you a travelogue of New York. Mm-hmm. Ross Andrews is, more than anything, Ross Andrews gives you a real grounded New York with sense of, of location and geography, which perhaps Ramita and Ditko didn't really do. Yes, it was set in New York, mm-hmm. but Stan's writing basically made it seem like New York was the size of a postage stamp. Right. He could leave the Daily Bugle building and walk into ESU. Mm-hmm. And you're like, really? They're next door to each other. <laughs> whereas, whereas with Ross Andrew, you got this idea that New York's actually quite a big place. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I guess it's because I, I, when I was growing up and I started reading Spider-Man, it was Conway who was writing him at the time. Mm. Uh, I guess that kind of set for me what I think Spider-Man should be. And if, if there is any writer that wrote Peter as pissy, it's Jerry Conway. Yes. Even more than Stan. Who mm-hmm. would, Stan would write Peter as having foibles and occasionally being unlikable and a little bit selfish. Mm-hmm. But then he would pull it back and he would have Peter have a moment of self-reflection where he went, mm, I was a bit of a dick there, and he would apologise for his mistakes. Conway's Spider-Man is a dick. Mm-hmm. Frequently, he's a dick to the police. He's a dick to J. Jonah Jameson. You can fully understand in Conway's run why the police and Jonah hate him. <laughs> because he treats them with no respect whatsoever. Even police that are on his side that are like, you know, I, I'm not sure that Spider-Man's guilty of anything, really. He's, he's done too many good yeah. things. He treats them like assholes. Mm-hmm. And it spreads over as well into his Peter Parker personality. Because the idea was Peter Parker, being Spider-Man, gave Peter the freedom to be himself. Mm -hmm. And the himself that he was under Stan Lee was, he was jokey and he was funny. And he was able to embrace the parts of his personality that he kept buttoned up as Peter Parker. Mm -hmm. Conway basically makes both Peter and Spider-Man dickheads. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I mean, it's not that I don't love Conway's run. I love Conway's run. Mm-hmm. There's some wonderful stuff in there from the gritty, the death of Gwen Stacy and the, the slide of Harry Osborn into drug use right. to the utterly ridiculous of Spider-Man inheriting a nuclear island from Aunt May. So Aunt May inherits it from <laughs> Dr. Octopus, doesn't she? Yes, yeah. yes. And then cr- ridiculous villains like the Mind Worm. Oh, the Mind Worm. And the, and the Cyclone. And the Mirage. Um, now, well, Mirage is Len Wein. Okay, so, so let, okay. But yes, the, the Mind Worm and uh, the Grizzly was his, too? The Grizzly was his, yes, the and Grizzly. And the Jackal, who I always thought was going to be something bigger than he was. But, see, the thing with the Jackal, though, I give Conway all the credit in the world for this. If you go back and read the, the Ramita Lee issues, with that story now in mind, mm-hmm. that he had a crush on Gwen Stacy from the beginning... It works. It's textbook how you do a comic book retcon. It doesn't contradict anything Stan Lee did. It doesn't flatly deny anything Stan Lee did. But if you read it with that in mind, you can go, actually, yeah, that works. <coughs> Excuse me. Now compare that to Sin's Past, which resolutely does not work. No matter how you try and fit that into the continuity, it doesn't work. 
The only way it works is for Straczynski to take a bulldozer to what is already being established. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the reasons I don't like Since Past. There, there are many reasons to yes. not like that piece of shit. But Conway's retcon, that mm-hmm. the jackal Professor Warren had a, a crush on Gwen Stacy, works. Mm-hmm. It really does. It does not flatly contradict or, or make anything of the older stories. It is fully respectful of what Stan did, while saying, yeah, but behind the scenes, this was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... And the thing is, people don't realize, I think, because the Jackal is now considered, like, what, a D-lister? He is, really, and that's a shame. The thing is, back when it was happening in Media Res, that was a big deal. Who who was the Jackal was? What was he doing? Yeah, it was, I imagine, I wasn't alive, but I imagine it was the equivalent. it It was the equivalent of the Green Goblin reveal, wasn't it? Yeah. Who is this guy? What's what's he got on Spider-Man? How does he know all this stuff? And it seems to be... I did read it fresh. I mean, many years after it was published. But I did read it. And it held together as a story. Um, yeah, okay, so... Ween was... What did... Ween did that silly kingpin arc... Yeah, Ween took over with issue 151 after Conway. Okay, right after that, right after that, that Gil Kane issue, yes, okay. Yeah, it it was left to Archie Goodwin to tie up all the loose ends of the clone saga. <laughs> so Conway bailed with issue 149. Archie Goodwin came in and basically established that this was the real Spider-Man, right. it wasn't the clone. <laughs> oh, 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 right. at the, the oh, naivete of that story. Oh, um, and now, well, the other great Jerry Conway story that we should mention, yes, he introduces the Punisher. The other great Jerry Conway story is very early in his run, before mm-hmm. we move on to Len Wein, the Hammerhead Doctor Octopus Gang War story. Which I is a huge... Is surprisingly, the one Conway creation that has stuck around. Yeah, because it's a great story. I have long argued Spider-Man isn't science fiction or fantasy, mm-hmm. other than the origin story. Right, you know, l- large dollop of self of um, suspension of disbelief is needed for the origin story because you can sit there and go, "Well, why doesn't he shoot webs out of his ass and all of that <laughs> stuff?" And forget all that, except he gets bitten by a radioactive spider. He makes his web shooters deal with it, right. and then the rest of it, for me, should be as grounded as it possibly can be. So I've said for a long time, the perfect Spider-Man story, TV show, whatever, would be Beverly Hills 90210 meets the Untouchables. <laughs> it would be the, the high school shenanigans of 90210 or Buffy <laughs> or Grange Hill or any of those high school right. shows that play it straight with Spider-Man being a crime noir. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the best crime noir stories Spider-Man's done. Hammerhead and Dr. Octopus are just fighting it out mm-hmm. to run the gangs. I don't know why Dr. Octopus runs the gangs. It's never something he's been interested in before, right. but whatever. And it's a great... And Hammerhead's just a great throwback to the 1940s mm-hmm. character. He's such a fun character, is Hammerhead. And the whole thing of Aunt May now lives with Dr. Octopus <laughs> and is is, is is living cleaner. And it's just, it's the perfect mix of utterly batshit crazy Bronze Age comicsness and gritty drama. Which I think a, is somewhat what 
Dick Nick Spencer was getting at when he decided to make Boomerang his roommate in his run. Do you not think Nick Spencer's going more for sitcom though? Mm-hmm. Because Boomerang is very very funny in the Nick Spencer run, and Peter Parker's reaction to Boomerang is very odd couple. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of that going for it in the Nick Spencer run. But yeah, the obviously the majority of Conway's run is he's known for killing Gwen, creating yeah. the Punisher and the Clone Saga, basically. Mm-hmm. And things just get silly after that, if I remember. Yeah, well, it, to be fair to Although Len I got to admit that one of my favorite single issues is in the Len Wein run. There's a lot of good stuff in Len yeah. Wein's stuff. He, he doesn't introduce the Spider-Mobile, but he brings that subplot to Thank an end. Thank God. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, there's a lot of good stuff in Len Wein's run. Len Wein's, the, the last 100 yards is really That's quite a the story. story. That yeah. is the story I was told. I, I was referring to when I said it's one of my favourite single Spider-Man issues. Yeah, that, that's a lovely little story and the marriage of Ned Leeds with Mirage is, is a nice little story. Uh, he introduces Stegron which I, I love Stegron. I, actually, he's... technically Stegron, well Stegron was in a uh, Marvel team-up. Did he write that Marvel team-up? I have no idea. I would but have, but he I don't started out as a Marvel up team-up guy amazing. and, and he just over brought him over here and said, the lizard, yeah. yeah. Here. And so there's a lot of fun in Len Weasley. My thing with Len Weasley, and I think the reason it just kind of gets glossed over is nothing mm. happens in it. Right. You've just had Jerry Conway kill Gwen, the Clone Saga, all of that stuff. Then Len Wein comes along, and he essentially just treads water, mm-hmm. other than introducing a new Green Goblin. Right. Which doesn't really work out. But I like. Than, the I mean, fact... there's nothing wrong with it. There is nothing yeah. wrong with the Len Wein run at all. Right. And you know what? The Brad, I like the Brad Hamilton story. Yeah. Because the thing the thing I like until we get to the Grimdark era. Yes. Is that Harry Osborne acknowledges he was the Green Goblin. And he's trying to move on with his life. And he's trying to move on with his life. And usually the only time he puts on the costume is either as a favorite of Peter or if somebody is using the name. Yeah, or somebody somebody's pissing him off. Yes, and he's he's and I I like the post Conway Harry Osborn because he just becomes this meek kind of. Uh, I've kind of had a few problems in life. I just want to forget it and get on with my life. Thanks. Mm-hmm. And because he keeps hanging around with Peter, he keeps being drawn into Peter's <laughs> drama. And you can actually see why why Harry probably cut the toxic presence that is Peter Parker out of his life. Yeah. I mean, I love that Mitchell. It's a Mitchelliney McFarlane issue, I think, where yeah. uh, Harry totally owns the Hobgoblin. Yeah, it's a it's an Inferno and, crossover, isn't it? And, and, and Spider Man's going, you know, we could use another hero, and he's like, "Why are you crazy?" <laughs> and it's it's kind of what they were going for in Spider Man Three with yeah. Harry Osborn that they pulled off to lesser degrees, but they tried it. So fair play to them. Len Weed is superseded by Marv Wolfman. I think Marv Wolfman's run is one of the most overrated runs on the comic. Right. I, I, I've done an entire show about it. I think it's miserable for the most part. We can talk he, about how toxic that relationship is with Black Cat. Till yes. the cows come home. And then have the cows yeah. talk about it. 
And that's and that he gets rid of Mary Jane because he wants to bring Betty Brant back. Mm-hmm. No one gave a shit about Betty Brant when Peter was dating her. Nobody <laughs> wanted her back. Mm-hmm. And then he has that wonderful moment where Peter shags a married woman. <sighs> and you're like, okay, oh, is this where we're going? Peter right, Parker is then... not Hal Jordan, people. No. <laughs> and you've got the whole art where Aunt May's dead. Ooh, whoops, no, she isn't. Yeah. The first of several. Yes. And that's and the other... And Spider-Man 200 that everyone thinks is good except me. Oh, look, it's it's a it's a 100 a anniversary issue. It's time to kill Aunt May. Again. Yes. Uh, granted, though, I will, that's another one of my favorite single issues is uh, Spider-Man 400. And I don't usually like J.M.D. Mateus's work. No, I see, I like a lot of Dematteis's work. I think if Bronze Age, we'll go over to Marvel Team Up in a bit when we cover the main. Yeah. But he, he had a great run on Team Up mm-hmm. with Kerry Gamble. Right. But, um. Marv Wolfman's big blowout with Jim Shooter led to Denny O'Neill coming in. Denny's run is, is loathed. I don't think I hate it. But I. Do... I think there's a lot to like. Okay. I, I think. Though that Denny was not was never comfortable at Marvel. No, and he certainly wasn't comfortable with Spider Man. Yeah, maybe maybe with Daredevil and Iron Man. You could look at Daredevil has a kind of dry run for his question. Yeah, and because he's doing a lot of the here's a focus on a character whose Daredevil's life has cr- has crossed. Uh, but unfortunately, he also created some of the worst villains for Daredevil, but that's neither here nor there. Mick a sin, anyone? <laughs> yes. Well, I want to use Craven, but I really can't, so I'll use this. I'll uh, make this guy up. Yeah, I'll make this guy up. But um, I, I never thought he was comfortable. And, and Iron Man, I remember at first really being angry at him for totally reversing the David Michelinie. Uh, Demon in the Bottle story, but then, but as I grow older, and I become more knowledgeable about my own mental illness, uh, I realize that that's actually a fairly realistic thing hmm. that he did. Oh, but I was going to say the Denny O'Neill run does contain two classic issues, both the annuals Denny wrote, mm-hmm. Annual fourteen, the Ben Sinister, and Annual fifteen, Doctor Octopus wants to poison New York, are classics. <laughs> Dr. Octopus taking care of the Punisher without even looking yeah. at him. Without <laughs> breaking a sweat. Yes. Um, and oddly enough, there's one element that Denny O'Neill used that for some reason everybody else glommed on, which is something we were discussing uh, privately, which was Calypso. Yes. Calypso, somebody tried to make Calypso a thing in the 90s. I yep. barely remember her. Well, Every time I read a comic with her in, I'm like, oh yeah, she was a thing. Yes. It's like they, they really, the D.G. Chichester run of Daredevil, they really wanted her to be a major character. Mm. And uh, also, of course, she's apparently a major character in McFarlane's gibberish in, in, his, in the Spider-Man book. Oh yes, yeah, in the first five issues, yeah. Doom, doom, doom indeed. Rise um, above it all. <laughs> right, but we don't have to talk about that because <laughs> it's not in our remit. So it's let's not avoid. in our remit. We're, we're even though even though we're going to keep going back and forth, we're primarily trying yeah, to yeah, yeah. focus on the. Yeah, bronze it's all age. it's all interconnected. Isn't yeah, it? 
but, but that's the thing with comic books they are they are incestuous mm-hmm. one writer's work feeds another writer's work mm-hmm. but then it's the second golden age of spider-man mm-hmm. when roger stern comes on amazing spider-man he delivers nothing but banger after banger mm-hmm. if this was an album if spider-man is a series of albums this is the best record of his career okay uh, i amazing i'm Sp- not as big a fan Oh, I love it. I think but I have two, some two, four, positive things three, to say, and I'll, let, I'll say them after you're done with your, your opening statements. I, I just think that there is, there's no wrong in it for me. It's First off, he brings back the Vulture as a serious adversary mm-hmm. for him, and then he wraps up the Fool Killer storyline that he was setting up when he was writing Peter Parker. Right. And then he writes Black Cat as a proper character and not a sex bomb. And then you just get nothing but genius after genius with the juggernaut two-parter the cobra two-parter the brand corporation four-parter mm-hmm. the return the first appearance of the hobgoblin the return of the vulture where for the first time we find out what the vulture's origin is and then a couple of setup issues leading into his big finale but of course in the the back end of it you've got the kid who collected spider right another great single issue story yeah, I just—it's an album of bangers, Roger mm-hmm. Stern's run. The, the thing, okay, the things I liked about the the Roger, I liked the fact that every once in a while he had him punching above his weight. Oh yes, which includes the Juggernaut and also Fire Lord. Let's not forget the Fire Lord story. That's that's Tom DeFalco. That's Letro. Oh okay. Mr. Hyde is above Spider-Man's weight class. Willow the Wisp is definitely above Spider-Man's weight class. That's a Jerry Conway character, isn't it? Yes, yes. the four-part brand corporation story is Willow the Wisp gets involved because he was created by the brand corporation. Right. So it's one of those where Willow the Wisp isn't actually a bad guy. He's going after the bad company that did this to Mm -hmm. him. But the way he's going about it brings him into conflict with Spider-Man. And throughout the issue, basically, Spider-Man's, look, I'm actually, I'm on your side, honest. (laughs) Uh, And I also, um, you know, I like like that. And I like that he tried to get it back to a normal, basically a more grounded area. Yeah, Peter's a lot more likable under Roger Stern. Mm-hmm. He's not He's not a jerk under Roger Stern's role. Right. He still makes mistakes, but he's not an asshole. And the supporting cast are given their own storylines, and Nathan Lebensky is actually a nice old coot under Roger Stern. Mm-hmm. He doesn't become objectionable until Tom DeFalco starts writing him. Right. So the, P- the Peter Parker stuff, and Peter... He only does the photo journalism at that point just as a side gig. He, right. he is a teaching assistant. So he's got a new supporting cast of like Marcy. God, what was her name? She went out with Jack O'Lantern for a bit. Jack O'Hearts, not Jack O'Lantern. Jack O. Marcy, Marcy Kane. Yes. You've got Marcy Kane and Roger Hotchberg and all these other TAs that work with him. So essentially, you've got a completely different supporting cast. For this, for the Roger Stern era, other than obviously the standbys mm-hmm. about May Jonah Jameson and all of that stuff, right? But he's not really, he's not really down the bugle that much. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger Stern also brings Jonah to task for creating the Scorpion, mm-hmm. which had never been done before. The Hobgoblin tries to blackmail him 
for his part in creating the Scorpion, and, and Jonah basically owns up to it, publishes it in the paper, I did this, this is on me, and steps down as publisher of the Daily View. Mm-hmm. So you've got him basically paying off old storylines, though, from decades before. And the nice thing about that aspect, about that story, is that it kind of points out something that a lot of people seem to forget, is that J. Jonah Jameson is a responsible journalist. Yes. He just has this blind spot when it it comes comes to costumed heroes. Yeah, and particularly Spider-Man. Yeah. He doesn't seem to go after, you know, the Fantastic Four with the same zeal mm-hmm. that he goes after Spider-Man. And I don't know that he's ever had an opinion on Daredevil. You think he'd hate Daredevil. <laughs> but it's Spider-Man who, who really sticks in his craw. Yeah. But I, I, I think every one of Roger Stone's issues is a, is, a, is a great read. I think it's the last time, honestly, I think it's the last time Spider-Man was consistently good. Mm-hmm. Every issue. There right. was good runs, good issues, good moments after that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they lost their way. Right. Like Michelini, and sometimes editorial interfered with them. Michelini. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, and then obviously the wheels come off a little bit post-Bronze Age with the clone side. Oh, but that's out of our remit. Keep, keep moving. Keep dancing. Keep dancing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we want this story to keep going because it's selling. Keep keep that dancing and the right. As much like, as I, I hate the clone saga, there there are elements in it I like, but I really can't stand it. Uh I found that that um column The Life of Riley fascinating. Yeah, that's that's a good read that. They keep talking about expanding and updating that and doing it as a two morals book. Mm-hmm. And I hope they do, because that that would be great, especially from the perspective of now as well, yeah. with the 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 further ramifications of the clone saga. But and I, I, I have to admit, I'm a big I'm a big fan of of Kane, and that's all I'll say. Hmm. Even though I did not like the idea that let's show how badass he is by having him kill Doc Ock. Well, this thing with Kane as well, it was never explained what his hand burning power was. And it's like all the writers were, yeah, yeah, it's his ability to stick to walls, take to the nth degree. Right. And I'm like, yeah, but you never explain that in the fucking comics. Yeah. You're, you're, you're not J.J. Abrams. You don't expect us to read supplementary <laughs> material for your film to make sense. Right. It, it's not a mystery box. Yeah. It's, you should have, it's one line of dialogue in a comic somewhat. Mm-hmm. It wasn't hard, dude. <laughs> so and then he, he he goes off to Secret Wars where he comes back with the black costume right. and Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends take over. Once again, I'm sure Tom DeFalco's a nice guy. I really am. Did nothing for me. Did you did it not? See, I I don't think it's anywhere near as good as the Roger Sterney mm-hmm. era. I do think it has moments. I do like what he did with Murray Jane. Mm-hmm. I do like Puma. <laughs> happened to him because he was a uh, major deal in the book for like a long time yeah. well doesn't he end up working with silver sable as part of sable industries or something yeah but we Quite don't odd. see we see him anywhere after that though i can't remember for the life of me what he's been I, doing I, I, recently i think maybe he was a uh, supporting character in uh, silver sable in the wild pack yeah he may have been when you get a book and you get a book yeah, everyone can have a comic. Yes. And um, so that there is good stuff in the DeFalco run, but mm-hmm. DeFalco frequently clashed 
with his editor James Owsley. Now, DeFalco tells it as Owsley was constantly undercutting him and Ron Friends and sliding um, filler books in to claim that they were behind schedule, which is not true. Tom DeFalco's never been behind schedule in his life. But there was also this story as well that if you did six issues in a row, you got a bonus. Right. And by slipping these fillers in, he was preventing DeFalco and friends from getting their bonus. Well, I think there's Uh, a very... There's a a very good reason why Christopher Priest, who was Jim's Owlsley at the time, uh, decided never to be an editor again. Hmm. I, I think that, that 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 was a higher up decision because if you remember, Shooter had that habit of you always have to have X number of fill-in stories, and when he was ousted, yeah. people were going, "We paid for this stuff. Get it out. Get it out." Yeah, just throw it in there. And it's not that some of those fillers weren't were good. There's a Bob Defal Bob Defalco, Bob, Bob McLeod, Bob Layton. Oh, Bob Layton. Yes. A Bob Layton one with a photo cover, mm-hmm. where a guy actually gets a picture of Peter Parker mid-change, and the twist in the story is Peter Parker's one guy in New York City. Mm-hmm. The guy who got a picture of him doesn't know who he is, doesn't right. have a name, and he's like, well, how hard can it be to find him? It's like, dude, New York has however many millions <laughs> of people in it. And that's the twist of the tale, that like Peter has nothing to worry about. This guy doesn't know who he is, right? and he's never yeah, likely to bump into it. And the commuter, Peter David's commuter story is cute, but right. ultimately, you know, inconsequential. I have a very complicated relationship with Peter David. Um, you have heard the you've heard the the Peter David Hulk story that I've told before, have you not? No. Okay. okay. Here's a little bit of learning for you for you youngins. Uh-huh. Back before there were podcasts, there was some there was something called an APA, which was short for Amateur Press Alliance. And what would happen is everybody in the in the APA would put together their own little magazine, print out enough copies for everybody else in the alliance, plus a couple of extras to send out to celebrities and such, and then the, send it to the central mailer, who would then collate them all and send them out mm. right I was part of an appa called Thwack which was a comic based appa and I did an article where I was talking about some of my favorite runs that were going on presently and I mentioned the Hulk and I said something not very nice about Peter David because he kind of insulted me at a con once And I figured that was that. Now, this APA gets sent to Kurt Busiak. Kurt Busiak is an old friend of mine. We worked together at Scott Meredith Literary Agency. Kurt goes, Peter, what did you say to this guy? Peter David finds my phone number. And one night I'm at home. And I get a phone call. From Peter David, who says, and I quote more or less accurately, what did I do to you or your mother or your dog that you said this about me? Mm-hmm. And I stuttered and I stammered and I did point out, and he just continues to rant at me. And once again, I figure that's the end, right? Well, you'd think. Yes, 
But no. About a year later, I'm oh, I'm reading an issue of the Hulk. It's an issue that features the Abomination. Mm. And out of nowhere, Bruce ba- this is this is the Smart Hulk. This is the Bruce Banner Hulk. Says something out of nowhere has an insult to the Abomination, which is directly taken from that Appa. Hmm. So, um. So, so you made an impression then. Yeah, I made an impression, yes. But, uh, I, I, I think that he is a good writer when he wants to be, but he's never met a really bad joke. He won't go out of his way to set up. Hmm. Well, the, there is stories of an acquaintance of ours, him making a friend of those cry. <laughs> at a convention. Dear. I'm not going to say on oh, no, her in case he doesn't want that story out. Though, mm-hmm. But, you know, so. But um, I actually kind of like that Peter Parker run that he did. Yes, that's that's okay. Well, you know. Th- that pretty much defines Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're going to go full Bronze Age, then I suppose we should address the fact that in the in the Bronze Age... Uh, our oh, beloved oh, Spider-Man became Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, Spider-Man. because, you know, let's milk this concept for all it's worth. Mm-hmm. And it I don't know that Peter Parker was ever a 100% good book. Mm-hmm. Certainly it's, it's distinctly unmemorable for, like, the first couple of years of its existence. Mm-hmm. There's maybe, like, the Carrion story. Yeah. That is in any way memorable. And that's it. Until Roger Stern comes on board. <laughs> and again, Roger Stern delivers some cracking issues. Mm-hmm. His first appear his first fight with the Cobra. Right. Is in Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man. And a number of his ideas. Roderick Kingsley, who would become the Hop- Hobgoblin. Who was intended to be the Hobgoblin all along. And not Ned yeah. Leeds and not Flash Thompson. Not Flash Thompson. Wasn't um, if I, I think actually that the idea of making him Ned Leeds that was an order from Owsley, wasn't it? I think so. And then they killed Ned Leeds off in Spider-Man versus Wolverine, and yeah. people were like, "Well, it can't be Ned Leeds now." And it was Peter David who said, "Yeah, it can. No one will expect that." Mm-hmm. And that leads to the issue where we find that out, which is, for my money, still one of the worst issues of Spider-Man ever published. <laughs> It's it's a mess from start to finish. I do not like that story. I do not like that mm-hmm. resolution. And I'm glad Roger Stone got to come back and finish it. Even and said, no, convoluted. no, this is how it really happened. Yeah, it's convoluted yeah. how he did it and how he had he to do, do it, it, but it works. But again, it's it's the first time he really in, in, indulges in a serious retcon. He establishes that the aliens that Peter Parker fought back in Amazing Spider-Man number two mm-hmm. were not aliens. There were people in rubber masks. Headlined by my favourite Spider-Man villain, Mysterio. Yes, Mysterio's in that issue. And he, he, he brings it all to an end with a great two-parter where he basically redeems the given. Mm-hmm. Which is a lovely moment. And the issue he did with John Byrne with the ringer is one of the few times Peter treated Deb with any respect. Mm-hmm. So fur play to Roger Stern. Okay. And then Bill Mantlo comes aboard <sighs> and has. I, no, I, I think this is a great run. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. This is some mantle of best work. I, once again, I have a complicated relationship with Bill Mantlo, but it's not personal, like with, with Peter David. Um, yeah. No, it's just, I think that he, he was, like Stern, I think like Stern, Bill Mantlo was a great meat and potatoes guy. Yes. In that you would get what it said on the tin. If it I, said Spider-Man, you would get a Spider-Man comic. If it said the Hulk, you would get a Hulk comic. Hmm. Uh, I mean, but I th- think that he had this... Somebody, I think Fred Hembeck used to refer to them sneeringly as um, the Bill Mantlo Repertory Company of characters that always came with him, hmm. no matter where he went. Here's the White Tiger... Here's uh, here's the Jack of Hearts. Yeah, hope you hope you like them. Let's see the thing with. I think one of the reasons this era stands out for me is Ed Hannigan's absolutely fantastic covers. These he's got some brilliant covers, but well, he's a great designer. Yes, Hannigan knows how to design a cover so that it draws your eye to what needs to be drawn. And there's some really innovative covers in that Mm -hmm. era. The first appearance of Cloak and Dagger. Is a really innovative cover. Spider-Man fighting what he thinks is Doctor Octopus. Mm-hmm. A painted cover by Ed Hannigan is really innovative. The fight with Electra on top of the the neon epic sign mm-hmm. is really innovative. And I think Bill Mantlo delivered great stories here. He brought back Harry and Liz. Mm-hmm. He he created Cloak and Dagger. He gave us one of the best Electro stories ever. Mm-hmm. Um, he brings back Cloak and Dagger and then he does the whole Doctor Octopus the Owl gangland fight, which essentially is the same as the Hammerhead Doctor right. Octopus one where Black Cat gets shot multiple times but ultimately recovers mm-hmm. and he, he does one of the best single issues of the run I covered the waterfront in Amazing Spider- in, sorry, in Peter Parker the spectacular right. Spider-Man issue 8 Spider-Man's not in it it's a J. Jonah Jameson story mm-hmm. that Spider-Man is behind the scenes helping Jonah out. Right. And Jonah doesn't know that till the very end. And mm-hmm. all we see, every now and again, a webbed hand will appear in frame or right. a shot of webbing will appear in frame. And we know that Spider-Man's helping him do what he's doing in this story. Do you think that when they added Peter Parker, the spectacular... Because you had... For, 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 from starting in the 70s, you had Spider-Man and you had Marvel Team-Up, which was kind of bootleg Spider-Man. He, he was Spider-Man, but he really wasn't. Yeah, because they'd already established many times under Stan Lee, Spider-Man didn't work well as part of a team. Yeah. So the fact that he was teaming up with somebody every month was mm-hmm. like, okay. But do you think that the dilution with Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man and then turning Team-Up into Web of Spider-Man mm-hmm. and then giving a fourth title to the character in the in the Grimdark era. That I, I think that kind of hurt things. Yeah, it does, because that's when it stops being a consistent life story of one mm. man. Because you've got to juggle... You've always got to juggle different writers and artists working on the character. Right. But that's much easier when you've only got one book to work with. Mm-hmm. The the fact that Amazing Spider-Man, the Roger Stern era, was happening at the same time that Peter was undergoing this gang warfare with the Owl and Doctor Octopus, mm-hmm. there always seemed to be this disconnect between the books. It's like Tom DeFalco would make references to them happening, 
but it was still a time period where if you weren't reading Peter Parker, it really didn't matter. Right. At all. And I don't think they ever really got around that. Even in the Clone Saga era, where essentially it just became one book. Right. There was always the feeling that nothing important ever happened in Peter Parker. And definitely nothing important ever happened in Webb. No, Web Web of Spider Man. Web of Spider Man is a remarkable comic, Tom. When you think about how many issues of that series are indispensable, <laughs> four maybe. Any issue that crosses over into the Clone Saga, mm-hmm. the issues that cross over into Craven's Last Hunt, and the first issue where you find out that he gets rid of the black costume, mm-hmm. and that's it. Web of Spider Man. You could leave that any of the stories in that run out of any best of Spider-Man stories ever told and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference. Mm-hmm. I get the impression that Web of Spider-Man basically became the inventory dump. Uh, More yeah, so than I mean, Spider-Man, because Spider-Man was supposed to be the prestige book. Yeah, where, and that became crap. That became crap very quickly, but the, the idea was uh, with... with Adjectiveless Spider-Man was that it was the big creators doing their stories. Yeah, it was supposed to be Legends of the Dark Knight. Yeah. And wasn't. Because Spider-Man at that time was not an episodic character like Batman is. Mm-hmm. You couldn't just sandwich a story in between other Spider-Man stories, really, without screwing up the puzzle pieces of this guy's life. Mm-hmm. So it didn't work in many ways. And I think, you know, the only other time Webb became in any way relevant was when Jerry Conway came back and was writing both Spectacular and Webb of at the same mm. time. But that run is not as good as his first run in the right. Still some interesting stuff in there, but nothing staggering. And then your friend Peter David comes on board for the death of Gene DeWolf. Yes, which is like... <laughs> I think it's just like... It, it's, it's like a smack in the face. I mean, in a yeah, good but not way. In a, good in a way. positive way. No, I, I don't think... Todd McFarlane arriving was a smack in the face in a good way. The death of Gene DeWolf is, well, what if I turn Spider-Man to this really grim, miserable character who loses his temper and beats the shit out of normal people and makes jokes why somebody's firing into a crowd of innocents? Okay, okay. It's not that I don't like Death of Gene DeWolf. Mm-hmm. I think it has moments. I think I think Peter David tries to make Spider-Man a character that he isn't. I think Peter... Da- I remember reading a interview with David where he was talking about everybody was... Ex- this was... He fought so hard to get a regular, a regular book because he was originally in the sales department hmm. at Marvel. And they were like, no, you can't do a regular book. We can do fill-ins, but you can't do a regular book. And eventually he gets this regular book, but the thing was, of course, all of his fill-ins were humor books. Yeah. Were light-hearted. So coming to over in amazing, yeah. So what he did with Death of Gene DeWolf is like, this is not going to be all fun and games, people. There will be fun and games, but there is not going to be. And I think it was like the equivalent of... Of Rob Zombie's first film. He doesn't know if he's going to get another chance. So he's throwing everything dramatic he can at the, at the, at the screen. Yeah. And the Christmas issue is fun. Mm-hmm. The one with that great Kyle Baker, Father Christmas cover. Mm-hmm. That's a fun issue. And there's a couple of... He does a Roshaman-like story 
where Peter, Murray Jane, and, and, and Jonah Joe all tell the same event from the three different points of view. The bank robbery, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that that's a good story. And, and then he kills a child. Mm. And you're like... Ash Can, I think, is what book. he was called retroactively. Mm. Yeah. And I'm like, it's, a, it's an affecting issue... I yeah. don't really come to Spider-Man to see children get killed. Right now, I know it's been retconned that he didn't die, mm-hmm. but that to me was everything that's wrong with Peter David's approach to the character. Okay. Spider-Man, yes, has tragedy happen to him. He isn't inherently a dark, gritty character in and of himself. Mm-hmm. He's not Batman. He's not the Punisher. He's not Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Which is why the the grim dark era, the era that starts with midway through the uh, Michelini Bagley stuff, yeah, just doesn't feel right. I mean, no, I remember reading an issue with the it was like the Vulture and the Owl were teaming up, and Spider Man went to to see Motocross Daredevil. <laughs> Because he wanted advice on how he could disappear like Matt Murdock did. And I'm like, this this is not what I'm coming for. Yeah. No, me neither. And I, I think that's that's where he starts. I think he's great at writing other stuff. I do think sometimes he does use his humor as a crutch. Yeah, oh, oh um, yeah, 100%. Um, but I, 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 I do sometimes are... think he... There are stretches. Misses the point. Okay, I think there are stretches in his Hulk run that are amazing. Yes, I think that I I rather liked his X Factor run. Yeah, I did. I liked his Madrox stuff mm-hmm. later on. Right, but anyway, um, when... and obviously the the other big Bronze Age title is Marvel Team Up. Yes, Marvel Team Up, which. They keep trying to bring back, you notice. And it never works. Team-up books don't sell anymore. No, no. They just, they just don't work anymore. Back when you could buy these things on the newsstands, right. it, it was a novelty to see Spider-Man team-up with Man-Wolf. <laughs> or Son of Satan, or whoever the hell he's or teaming Wood up God. with this week. Yeah. The, no, no, that was the Voodoo. thing that teamed up with Wood God. So, you know, but now it's it's not as much fun mm-hmm. because we now live in an era where you're not allowed to just write a comic that's fun. Yeah. Everything everything has to matter. And I also think it doesn't help team up that, by and large, for its first 40-odd 50 issues, it's a non-entity of a book. Yeah. It really does. There's good stories in there every now and again, mm-hmm. but it's really... It's only when Chris Claremont and John Byrne come on board that the book becomes even halfway decent and readable on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. The first appearance and, of Arcade. Yeah. And Captain Britain. Yep. Captain um, Britain appears. The the Saturday Night Live issue is a lot of fun. Which we cover in in the Assistant Editor's Month, myself, Chris, and uh, Dario uh, yeah. covered in the Assistant Editor's Month episode of Back to the Bins. And the Red Sonya team-up is arguably the best single issue in the run. <laughs> which I don't know that Marvel can even reprint anymore. Right. Because I don't think they have the rights to Red Sonya. Although there is a trade paperback out there with it in it. Right. 
from what, when they still have the rights. But you can buy that issue pretty cheap. Yeah. Nobody, nobody seems to be jacking the price upon it. For I, I suppose we should also mention very, very, very briefly, Giant Size Spider-Man. Oh yeah, Giant Size Spider-Man had team-ups with the Punisher and Doc Savage and, and all. Which that we'll stuff. never, we will never see again. <laughs> no. Because again, of rights issues. There's a good right. Dracula one. In the sense that Spider-Man and Dracula never meet. Yes. Which I like in that story. Mm -hmm. I think that works. Even though I'm never a fan of people like Spider-Man or Batman going, well, that's supernatural. That can't possibly exist. Right. And I'm like, dude, you've been to the moon. The Watcher exists. Yes. But a, a vampire, you know. It's one of those reasons why I think the X-Men work better has a uh, sexual liberation analogy than as a racism analogy. Hmm. Because okay, you're mad at the angel because he has wings. Naturally, because he's a mutant. But what stops him from saying to use, once again, cite something that, that uh, Derek said, oh, these are just mechanical wings that I put together. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, why, why do people not think Spider-Man's a mutant? Right. But anyway, hmm. we're not talking about the X-Men right now, except when they do appear in Marvel it's Team in Up. Marvel Team Up. <laughs> yes. And then, then, then you get J.M.D. Mateus and Kerry Gamble's run, which I'm, I think is great. Now, was it was it he the one that did the? No, no, I think it was it was Claremont that did the whole Black Widow arc. Yeah. That's, Cla that's Chris Claremont does the Black Widow, Nick Fury stuff. Right. Which I and thought then, was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. And then issue 100 arrives, which is also Claremont, but with Frank Miller. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, and then the, the first appearance of Karma. Yeah. And Karma a short story that I want to throttle. The Black Widow Stormwall. Black Panther Stormwall. Black pa not because it's not a good story, but because everybody misinterpreted it, and it was used as yep. justification for the the Black Panther storm wedding, which came off as looking like, hey, look, they're black. Let's marry them. Yes. So yeah, that's terrible. But um, but but James, the the team up with Gargoyle is is lovely. <laughs> is really poignant. Well, that was the his character. Yeah, that was his pet. The team up with Dominic Fortune is a wonderful old guy shows up to show the young kid how it's done story. <laughs> the the team up with um, Frogman right. fighting White Rabbit, who is Harley Quinn before Harley Quinn, mm -hmm. is really funny. James DeMatte is doing comedy better than anybody J else. See, that's the one time when I can I can stand James DeMatteis. When see, he's I got a sense of humour. Spider-Man run. Yeah. yeah. Uh, spectacular Spider-Man runs funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my problem basically with J.M. DeMatteis is, is similar to the problem I have with Anna Shanti, which is that he's so interested in certain aspects that he sometimes lets the story sit by the wayside while he expounds upon this psychological... Yeah, he is, he is interested in the psychology more than anything yeah. else. Uh, but there's a good Christmas issue with the Watcher. Mm -hmm. I like I like that Christmas issue, and I like his team. I like it. all of the Kerry Gamble, Diamante stuff. Really, I think holds up quite well. Right. 
And I like I like the cloak and dagger annual with the new mutants and the Jack of Hearts and Kitty Pride team up and the really stupid Ant May becomes a Herald of Galactus oh. issue. It's, come on, that's a system this week. It's oh, a lot of the... fun. Oh god, was uh, was Mateus and um, Gamble? Hey, I'm pretty sure they were. Were the ones that did the uh, episode where uh, the the issue where uh, Peter Parker and Nomad bond over their love of old old movies. I don't remember that. The only time I recall him teaming up with Nomad was later on, wasn't it? It was that towards was... the end of the run. Yes. No, it's Carrie Burkett. Okay. I'm just on Mike's Amazing World. That was it. That okay. Carrie Burkett wrote that issue. And uh, yeah, and it uh, lads with most of the books of this era where Jim Shooter lost interest in letting people tell stories and had to interfere. Mm-hmm. Team up goes out with a whimper rather than a bang. Yeah. But I, I think that deciding to put in, I could deal with team up ex- coexisting with Spider Man. Yeah. Because like I, as we, bo- we both agree. <laughs> That is a that is a Spider Man book. Yeah. Where there is this guy in a Spider Man costume and he teams up with other heroes and wacky shit ensues. Yeah, it may or may not be Peter Parker. Right. Could be anybody. But when you <laughs> but when when Marvel team up becomes Web of Spider Man it, it I think dilutes the brand even further. Yes. Because then you've suddenly got a, a reason for Web of Spider-Man to exist. Mm-hmm. And they never actually came up with a reason for Web of Spider-Man to exist. Except during there that brief no... time when it became Tangled Webs. Yeah, and when it when it crossed over the Clone Saga or yeah. whatever. Whenever it did anything like that, it became vaguely relevant to the overall. But mm-hmm. at least Marvel team-up had a place. Right. Because you could always use it, like DiMatteis primarily did, as an excuse to tell stories about characters who wouldn't necessarily carry their own book. Right. So he could do a Dominic Fortune story, mm-hmm. he could do a Gargoyle story, and he could do a Jack of Hearts story, and Spider-Man is essentially only there to sell the comic. Right. And he's not really a lot to do with the story. And that's always the best way of doing it. Whereas Webb, I mean, Webb doesn't, I'm, I'm being a little unfair, Webb doesn't start badly. Mm-hmm. The first issue with the great Charles Vest painted cover right. does have serious ramifications for stuff that followed, in that it's mm-hmm. how Peter gets rid of the alien symbiote. And leads to Venom, eventually. Yeah, and ultimately leads to Venom. And David Michelinie comes on board and he tells a good couple of stories. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the, the whole story where Peter and Joe Mercado go to Ireland and get caught up in an IRA bombing that he swiftly had to rewrite the next issue of after Marvel got bomb threats. Okay. Uh, and there's, he introduces Chance. Mm-hmm. Oh, in, I love Chance. In, I love, I love Chance, Chance, yeah. Character. The guy who, who doesn't take payment for yeah. whatever job he's doing, he gambles yes. on whether he's going to win or not. Yeah. And I think it, after he leaves, the book becomes trite of the highest art. Yeah, yeah. And it is a year's worth of fill-in issues, including one of the single worst Spider-Man stories in the history of ever. The one where the alien being comes to Earth to challenge him to a football match. And you're like, this isn't a Spider-Man story, people. <laughs> well, this, this is comes a Superman to why story. I really dislike the what I've read of the Dan Slott run, which is that, for me, and 
maybe this is because my my first exposure was Jerry Conway and Len Wein and Marv Wolfman. Spider-Man should be stopping bank robberies hmm. and should be the outlet for Peter's inner child, so to speak. Yeah, for the person Peter would long to be yeah. if he wasn't so buttoned up and repressed. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, he should be stopping bank robberies, he should be stopping gang and warfare, he should be stopping anything that affects the regular people of New York, of New York City. Yeah. And occasionally, like when they did, like when Michelani did like the Assassination Nation. Yeah, him leaving New York every now and again is it, a nice is a nice change of pace. It's a nice aperitif. Yeah, but uh, but he's he's not a science fiction character, right? Other than his origin, I said to you in our text, he right. is essentially the the old U.S. television model for science fiction television mm-hmm. was they basically had a, a tenuous link to science fiction. Mm-hmm. Sam Beckett is leaping from life to life. These astronauts are Planet of the Apes, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et but basically, they're just doing the fugitive, right? Everything else is straight up drama. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what Spider-Man is. His origin is, yeah, suspension of disbelief. He's bitten by a radioactive spider. That's how he gets his powers. Mm-hmm. But everything else should be relatively grounded. Right. And the minute he's on the moon, mm-hmm. in the blue area of the moon, with, with the Watcher. With, with the Watcher and, and yeah. Uh, Warlock. Yeah, and I tune out. Yes. I've just got no interest whatsoever in that kind of story. I don't mind him visiting Australia. Yeah. I don't mind him visiting London. I don't right. mind, like you said, the assassination plot. All the story Michelini did where he's touring with his book. Oh, that was fun. Yeah, all of that also, is interesting. Also, it gave him an excuse to do, um, char- do villains that Spider-Man would not usually encounter. Yes. So all, I have no problem with any of that on a, a rarity basis when it's done scarcely. Mm-hmm. But the minute you throw him in a science fiction story, I'm not interested. I hate any time he meets Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. I cannot stand, as visually fun as they may be, I always think the ultimate question at the end of it is, well, why the hell is Spider-Man in this story? Right. By definition, a Doctor Strange problem is absolutely nothing Spider-Man can do about it. It's completely out of his ballywick. Right. There is no way on God's green earth Spider-Man should be able to solve something that needs a Sorcerer Supreme. <laughs> it's like, the, if he's got any brains, the first thing he would do in such a situation is go, right, Stephen, yeah, 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 it's, it's Peter, yeah. Uh, are you busy? No, no, yeah, I've, I've just got this major problem that's, that's more your your area of expertise than my... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's happening over on Bleecker. yeah. Yeah, okay, cheers. And off he goes. Right. right. He's done his job. I, I've got to go, go fight straight. the shocker. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've, I've got to go and help out May move house. Yeah. So, you, you're going to be okay with it? Yeah, all right. See you soon. <laughs> and to me, the, if you are putting him in something that's a Fantastic Four story, right. then it's not a Spider-Man story See, by I definition. I accept him in a Fantastic Four story because there's that established friendship with oh, I can accept him in a Fantastic Four story right. as a guest star. What I mean is, if you're putting him in a story that is more a Fantastic Four story, 
he's dealing with an alien invasion or he's dealing with Galactus showing up. That's mm-hmm. not a Spider-Man story. Has now, been... having Spider-Man drop by the Fantastic Four as they're fighting Galactus, right. and they all go, right, we're going to off and fight Galactus. Can you and Johnny go off and do this side quest? Right. That's fine. Yeah. Um, has... Much as I find John Byrne's Avengers run the beginning of the end for him as an effective writer, mm. there is that one, I think it's a three-parter, where Spider-Man gets caught up in a battle with Nebula, with the Avengers, and the Avengers say, how'd you like to become an Avenger? And he goes, are you crazy? Yeah, I, I love it anytime Spider-Man says, I don't want to be an Avenger, other than the salary. I, I'm yeah. not taking orders from you. <laughs> That's just not who he is. Right. He's not going to sit there and take... He may respect the hell out of Captain America. Right. He's not going to take orders from him. Mm-hmm. Peter is, is the opposite of a military man. Right. So... Yeah, well, the Mitchell... I see, I really like the Michelani era. Even though it is sometimes problematic, and but I think this is the be- the real beginning of editorial interference. Yeah, because Edi- I, editorial I, driving the stories right. rather than the writer driving the story. Um, and I think also the beginning, the, the kind of like the beginning of the end of my satisfaction with Spider-Man as a whole was the beginning of these big event arcs. Hmm. We've mentioned the assassination nation, the return of the Sinister Six. But at least those stories all took place in Spider-Man's own comic. Yeah. You're not looking at, well, now you've got to go over and buy Web of Spider-Man. Right. For the next chapter of or, the story. Or and even worse. Was it Empowered or, or, or... Yeah, I think it was called Empowered, wasn't it? The, what, are you thinking of like Unlimited or something where they've made a big triple-sized book that you've got to spend three times Oh, no, we'll, we'll talk on. about Unlimited in a minute. I'm talking Ugh. about the story arc where he had the power of Captain Universe. Oh, the cosmic cosmic power story, yeah. yeah. the cosmic power story, which I think was originally called Empowered, I, I think. I don't know. Let's have a see. In the, in the corner box, it just says Spidey Goes Cosmic. Okay. So... Um, that's the first one that goes into all of the, the books. Yeah, that's the first time it crosses over into Spectacular and Web, and, uh, uh. and that was the beginning of the end of it being a coherent narrative. Mm-hmm. But I think that that was the beginning of the end, and I, I think that since the, um, since the Mitchell Line era, which is the last one I, I read every month, I've dipped in every once in a while. I did stick around for the beginning of the, the JMD Mateus stuff, and then not JMD Mateus, uh, Drusinski. The, the, the yeah, the end of the end of before that first reboot. Hmm. You know where Mackie was doing all this stupid shit, like the gathering of the five, which I think you mentioned, and the fact the revelation Ugh. that Aunt May was not dead after all. She was just taking care of a baby. No, she was an actress taking care of a baby. No, 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 she was an actress. But while the actress was going off and and dying and and telling her, oh, we knew you were Spider-Man all along. There was commitment to your job to actually die for the role. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, we have um, the real Aunt May in a cottage somewhere. And I think there was a baby involved. 
Yeah, the baby gets taken by Norman Osborn and never mentioned again. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess you can Wait. kind of sort of say that might be one of the the Grey Goblin twins. Mm. See, no, I, I, I subscribe to the Spider-Girl story that that was Mayday. Mm-hmm. They had a final confrontation. Goblin died. Spider-Man lost his leg. And 15 years later, we pick up with Spider-Girl. Yeah. Can I also say that I think bringing back Norman Osborn was one of the biggest mistakes they ever made? Yeah. It was one of the dumbest things they ever did. Because first bringing of all, back Norman Osborn. we saw his autopsy. Yep. <laughs> There is an autopsy in the issue right after the, the death of Gwen Stacy. Mm-hmm. But no, he gets better. No, no, yeah, exactly. Oh, but I got a scar. Uh, it doesn't count. No, I'm just the the justification for that being like they well, cut you open really... and wage your innards. <laughs> the, he's the only villain who we could think could pull this off. And you're like, really? You couldn't have said it was something to do with the jackal? Or Dr. Octopus. Oh, Dr. O- oh, no, they killed Dr. Octopus. Oh, that's Octopus right, they killed Dr. Octopus to, to prove how tough... Yeah, Kane was, wasn't Kane it? Kane was, right. Um, or or maybe, like, uh, Mendelstrom? Yeah, I think Mendelstrom would have worked. Because he the, he's the character that ended up being Gaunt because they didn't want Gaunt to be Harry Osborn. Hmm. Which, Harry Osborn would have made sense to me. <coughs> you know, I would have <coughs> clone Harry after Jack clone Harry Osborn. Yeah, and not he doesn't even have to be the real Harry Osborn because they right. have that many clones running around at that point yeah. anyway. But I mean, I think that it. See, the funny thing is, growing up, I thought Spider-Man's arch enemy was Doctor Octopus. I, I agree entirely. His arch enemy is not the Green Goblin. Yes, and all of a sudden the Green Goblin... And in fact, there's that, that line in that Dan Slott Ends of the Earth story where he says, well, my arch enemy. Well, maybe my third arch enemy. Hmm. I'm like, no, no, he was your arch enemy. Yeah, green, the Green Goblin only became a thing when he found out who he was. Yeah. And then Stan then had to basically just keep telling the same story that ended him with mm-hmm. getting amnesia. So right. there wasn't anywhere to take him after he'd done that story with him. But the fact was, when Norman Osborn came back, he was basically a Luther stand-in. Yeah, he, was, he turned him into Lex Luthor. Which doesn't work, didn't work for me. And uh, I, I did come back, and I, I think I sat... I know I, know I, listen, I, I read issue 50. Of the reboot of, of volume two with uh spider-man and with uh peter and mary jane in the laguardia airport and meeting captain america and all that shit yeah and doctor do yeah. yeah just walking through the airport i don't remember i remember getting just dissatisfied because it was like okay this is fine and i really hated the whole spider totem bullshit yeah, I wasn't a big fan of that, but compared to what came afterwards, it was Shakespeare. Yeah, but then again, let's be honest, that, that is Straczynski's move. You look at all the stuff Straczynski does with major publishers, and that's his move. Let's choke everything you know is wrong. You know, Superman, you know, that, that Superman walking. 
Yeah, I, I feel that I've lost my connection with humanity. What some Clark Kent doesn't count, does he not? Yeah. But and it's yeah, it's it's ultimately the the Straczynski run is ultimately tainted by since past. I don't care how good what he did before that was. Mm-hmm. Somebody in editorial should have said, "No, this is bullshit of the highest order." But the thing was, of course, Joe Quesada was so in love with the idea of celebrities writing, writing the Marvel books, and yeah, how I would love to to, to view an alternate universe where instead of Joe Casada, they tapped Jimmy Palmiotti. Yeah. To be the, the editor in chief at Marvel. Because apparently, for, uh, this is hearsay. This is hearsay. I don't have any accreditation, no, uh, no receipts, as Sasha Woods likes to say. But from what I understand, they called Joe for a meeting about what they thought about Jimmy being. being made editor-in-chief, and Jimmy used it as an opportunity to throw him under the bus and prove that he was the guy. Hmm. But he was so in love with celebrities that he just didn't want them touched when they were they were doing their stuff. You know, which is why we got, uh, what was his name? The guy who created the Young Avengers. Oh, Alan Heinberg? Yeah. The OC? The OC, yes. Alan Heinberg, who says, I'm going to do the Young Avengers for... Six issues. Six issues. Um, and they've never been able to, to, to recover since. <laughs> but, but, yeah, no, it's... Then, of course, we get what is probably, in my mind, the worst Spider-Man. Sin's Past is awful. Don't get me yes. wrong. Sin's Past is really bad. I do not like... Because it, it, it paints everybody in a bad light. Yes. It retroactively treads all over other writers' work. Right. It, it, which it, it, it is turns. Which is a way to respect other writers, Mr. Straczynski. Yeah. It, it, it turns Gwen into a woman of loose virtue, let's say. Mm. It makes Harry Osborne something he never was. Right. It, it turns Peter into a cuckold. It makes Murray Jane a liar. Yeah. It's just, it's a terrible... But, one more fucking day. Oh, you've not, you've, you've skipped the other, dude. Oh, I've skipped... It got worse. Oh, oh, there was something in between that I forget? Maybe it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's been blanked out of my mind. The one where somebody comes up and eats Peter's eyeball and he gets reborn after dying and being beaten to death. Oh, the other! Oh, I yeah. forgot about the other! But that's a Mark yeah. Millar shit. That's not a Michael Straczynski no. shit. Is it? Because I thought yeah, no, that's Mark, Straczynski Mark was Mark Millar had his own shit going on. Oh, no, right. Okay, no, amazing Mark Spider-Man. Mark Millar sucks David. goats. Right, no, amazing Spider-Man. The other was written by Peter David. Sorry, I thought it was Straczynski. Okay. Because all right, okay, I stand corrected, but I do not. St- I still stand by my statement that Mark Miller sucks goats. Yeah, well, and then you know, Civil War. <laughs> right, and then of course we have one more fucking day. Yeah, uh, where a, a hero who's one of the, the base themes of his book is with great power comes great responsibility. Doesn't want to let go of his mommy. So he makes a deal with the devil. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary Jane does. Okay. 
but, but it doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it better at all. Now, Grant. Now, here's the thing. I, okay, I understand. Joe Quesada did not want to marry Spider Man. Okay, I would argue that that was not a not a good th- that thing because at that point there were more people I think reading married Spider-Man than there was reading the Spider-Man yeah, there, before. There were more people who'd come into the right. series at this point who had come in with him being married and that's all they'd ever known. But because Joe Quesada has a serious Jones for Gwen Stacy, he wanted... Uh, he decides to retcon this away and he didn't want to have them divorce, which to me would be perfect for Spider-Man. <laughs> Well, did Straczynski's original ending for this was to just wind it back to Amazing Spider-Man 100 and go from there. It wasn't his intention to keep everything intact apart from the wedding because even he realised that that was just far too problematic. Mm-hmm. He basically wanted Brand New Day to be Amazing Spider-Man 101 right? and go forward from there because that was the last time... So would he regrow... That- the, the well, I don't know. I don't know if they were going to do the six arm things, <laughs> which may have been fun. Yes, it may have been entertaining to see. But you know, just imagine how different life could have been if the Volume Two reboot by Howard Mackey and John Byrne had actually gone with their original idea that the Gathering of the Five was organised by the Shaper of Worlds, and to fix whatever problem was going on in the Gathering of the Five. Peter had to sacrifice his own life in the sense that he would have to undo everything and only he would have any knowledge that this alternate timeline ever existed and he would wake up back in high school and over a few issues his memories of everything else would fade. Right. So basically volume two of Amazing Spider-Man number one should have started with Peter back in high school. But they decided against it because they knew that they wouldn't be on the boot forever and people just would not be able to resist redoing the death of Gwen Stacy or the clone saga or any of that stuff. And it would just become a greatest hits package. Yeah, so instead we get Brand New Day with a character forced down our throat in uh, Carly... Carly Cooper. Carly Cooper. I, I want to say Carly Conway. But I didn't want to insult Jerry using that. Uh, Carly Cooper, named after Joe Casada's daughter, by the way. Alright. Um, who was the, who was supposed to be the Gwen Stacy stand-in. And we had a, uh, a Mary Jane stand-in as well. Mm. In, uh, uh, what's her name? The, the, the daughter of the councilman. Yeah, the daughter of Menace. Yes. Oh, I cannot remember her name. Right, I, I can't either. And I just recently read those issues. <laughs> but, um, and they, they did redid the whole thing of, of Peter. Oh, she's really hot. I wonder if, oh, no, I can't. Lily, put... Lily Hollister. Okay, Lily Hollister. There we go. Oh. I, I have not. I had not read anything since One More Day. Until recently. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah. See, the thing with Dan Dan Slott's run, Superior Spider-Man is an interesting idea. It's not a new idea. 
but it's an interesting idea. Hell, Buffy did it as recently as right. whenever Buffy was on the air. With this the idea on, that yeah. with the, well, not just the faith that with the when Xander gets split into two people. Oh, okay. And the realization Xander realizes that the only thing holding him back from being what he wants to be is himself. It's not that the clone of him is any cooler or smarter than he is. It's that he's holding himself back. And that essentially what Superior is. Superior Spider-Man comes along, Dr. Octopus goes, you had all this potential all along and you did nothing with it. And he essentially builds a better Peter Parker than Peter Parker ever was. And that's a good idea. Because then you've got to bring it back. Because obviously at the end of it, it is going to bring Peter Parker back. And Peter's suddenly got this situation that he didn't build. So Peter's guilt complex is going to be right. Well, none of this is actually mine. Mm-hmm. So that's a good idea. But after Superior was over, he just goes into eminently forgettable summer blockbuster after summer yeah. blockbuster. It stories, becomes Dan Slott auditioning doing for Michael Iron Man. Bay. Yeah, yeah, he wants yeah. to do Iron Man stories, and it it just becomes distinctly unmemorable blockbusters that are maybe a little bit fun in the moment yeah but there's nothing memorable about the era by the way what the fuck was the goblin king all about i don't even remember it's like i i i I, i'm i'm reading the red goblin arc and this guy called the the goblin king shows up and it's like oh by the way he's phil uric oh yeah and then he gets killed to prove what a badass Carnage Norman Osborn is. Yeah. And it's... it's. uh, I barely remember anything of that run. Because at least Brand New Day had a couple of good stories in it from other people normally. Right. Like, um, Mark Wade wrote a couple of good issues and Mark Guggenheim wrote a couple of good issues. New Ways to Die is not awful. New Ways to Die is quite interesting. Uh, was it Zeb um, Wells, I think, who did some some humorous stuff that was pretty good? Well, he did Shed, which was the lizard story where oh. he had his own son. Oh, uh, God! You know, Mark, anytime Marcus Martin draws an issue, it's at least visually interesting. Right. Well, I mean, the, the, the Bob Gale uh, issues yeah. that, I, that, I, that I read were drawn by Phil Jimenez. Yeah. yeah. And I love Phil Jimenez, although I think he's yeah, so, more of a, a teen artist than a, a, a solo artist. So at least they look good. And Joe Kelly has a couple of good in good stories as well. Grim Hunt's not bad, although I don't know why they feel the need to resurrect Craven. Again and again. Yeah. And it, so now you got Sparkles, the daughter of Craven. Yeah. So, you know. And no one dies is interesting and Spider Island has moments. And mm-hmm. It's, it's all, like, there are bits and pieces that are worthwhile. But part of the problem, I think, is the reason why I left mainstream comics in the first place back in 2011, which is there's no time to build your own stories. No. It's all play settings between the big events. And in the case of Spider-Man, you've got the big Marvel event and the big Spider-Man event. Hmm. And maybe even a big Venom event, too, while we're at it. And whatever is going on that crosses over into every single Marvel boot this year. Has to stop, yeah. Yeah. Whatever whatever storylines has to stop. Has to, you know. And I, I, 
I read the first few Nick Spencer issues. I was mm. I was kind of encouraged because I think that Spencer got the character more than Dan Slott ever did. Yes, and at least he's gone back to the idea of him in New York modern day. He wouldn't be able to afford to live on his own. Right. And um, I kind of like the idea that that, uh, the superior Spider-Man bites him on the ass from beyond the grave Mm. with the the plagiarism storyline. But... Yeah, the plagiarism of his doctorate. Yes, it's it's just it's not the Spider-Man I grew up with. It's not this, which is fine, I guess, if the other people want it. Mm. That, I mean, we've talked about who and how I said, you know what, new who's not really for me. That's fine. You guys can have it. So, but I don't know. It's just. People, I think, write off the Bronze Age, much like Joe Quesada wrote off everything pre-Frank Miller and the Daredevil run. Hmm. Actually- Whilst ignoring that some very, very good groundbreaking stuff in Yeah, it. yeah, no, he, he, I remember him saying in, in one of his first interviews, oh, well, we're doing a special Daredevil with Spider-Man crossover because, you know, Daredevil's characters are crap before Frank Miller comes along. He said, uh-uh, no, no, I, I, I will take it to the Gladiator every, any day over, you know, some random member of the hand. But do you think okay, before we end up with a little bit of fancy booking do you think that, because I have this this sneaking suspicion that the big two are going to go all digital fairly soon. Digital with trade paperbacks. Yeah, unless we follow the Ed Brubacker route right. of going full-on hardcover digitals, uh, graphic novels, which seems the logical way to go, because Kurt Busiek's going that way with Astro City as well. Right. So, do they even care anymore? Because that's not where their money's being made. No, the money's being made at the cinema. It's exactly. This is the, right now. Marvel and DC are IP farms. What actually happened? And I had people be more. Nice, I suggested that DC was when the pandemic started, and DC had those weekly books out for a while. I was saying DC is testing the water hmm. to for a digital to see if they could do digital only. And they said no, yeah. but they have they have to make. It's like. The, the booklets are losing money. Why not? But there's, but there's a hardcore fan base yeah. of them who won't stop buying them. It's dwindling because, you know, once, once you take... <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And once you take something out of somewhere that people can buy it easily, it becomes too much effort for them to yeah. go and buy them. Convenience is what life is about. And it does, I, does the continuing narrative that kept us all hooked as children right. ended the first time they rebooted it. Right. The first time they basically said, yeah, well, you know, the Peter Parker you've been reading for 20 years, that's not who, who he is. He's actually this Ben Riley guy. Right. You suddenly went, well, why am I following it then? Right. 
you've essentially whipped the rug out from under the character that I've read for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then when they ended it and relaunched Volume 2, that's when I think I disconnected from it. Right. It suddenly wasn't the continuing soap opera adventures of this character that I'd grown up with and loved. It was, well, we can just rewrite it whenever we want. Right. And ultimately stuff like Robert Kirkman's Invincible became more interesting to me. Right. Where he, essentially he did with Invincible what Spider-Man should be. He took him from high school to being an adult and then he ended the book. In, in a way, I think Ms. Marvel, you know, Kamala Khan, is more of a Spider-Man than Spider-Man is now. Yeah. But, okay, I always like to end this, we, we, we have to wrap this up, but I always like to end this with a little bit of fantasy booking, and you know how I, I, I pose this? You wake, you wake up and there's, I don't know who's owning Marvel, there's the mouse. Huh. And the mouse says, you take Spider-Man. What would you do? See, there's a part of the fan base at the minute that I just don't care yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. So it's the same as with the Doctor Who question. Yeah, so but the first thing we do that. is we get off of social media. Yes, yes, that is the first thing we do. The second thing I do, honestly, I think I have to take it back to around issue 110. Okay. The last time he basically was recognisably Peter Parker, and all of the supporting cast are still in there and unsullied. Right. So you've still got Gwen, you've still got Mary Jane and Flash and Harry and Aunt May and Aunt Anna and all that other stuff. None of his villains have been turned into grim, dark versions of themselves. I've been killed off. Right, no, no Venom symbiote. No, no. Well, I'd, I'd oh. bring Venom in because Venom's too popular a character to not have him around. Right, and I have no problem. Venom sells books. Right, and ultimately, we're in the business of selling comic books. But I would have to go back to issue one hundred and ten, and that's pretty much the only stipulation I would have. All right, you can bring back Venom because he sells. You can do something interesting with Carnage if you so desire because oh, I he hate sells. Carnage. Yeah, but he sells books. Right. So, you know, and I would say, as editor, that's it. Okay. You are not allowed to tell or retell any other stories. Tell new stories. With that status quo. Okay. Go forward, go for your life. Who would you reach out to for artist and writer? I mean, yeah, oh. artist and writer, yeah. Of, of them, I don't know the modern crop well enough to be able to pick, to be honest with you. My favorite writers are now off doing image stuff they don't they're not really bothered i mean of the old guard i think kurt busiak could make that work uh i think you know now would you reduce the number like like i always talk about how the this x-men reboot the hickman reboot is not working because it's all of a sudden eight books yeah, it would be Amazing Spider-Man, it would be one book for $5, but there'd be two or three stories in it every month, and it would be of reasonable thickness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I would almost say, I, you know, for artists, unfortunately I know that she's not doing uh, light, licensed stuff anymore. I would love to see somebody like Amanda Connor. Mm. Or Rachel Stott. Or Re- exactly, who have... A... In fact, that's that's a good idea, that Tom. Make it all female because the number of women who've worked on Spider Man is minuscule. So bring Gail Simone or Kelly Sue DeConnick in it to write it, and give it to a female artist. You and remember? Let's see. Okay, I'm going to reveal something for fans of the of the draft. 
that we ran this summer. If you remember, I chose Gail Simone as my writer for um, the Justice League. Mm. My original intention was to have Amanda Connor do the art. But Jimmy said, well, she doesn't want, she's not really interested in doing licensed, you know, company-owned stuff anymore. I said, okay, so out of respect for you guys, I will not. That's why I went with Phil Jimenez. Hmm. But, yeah, no, I would love to see Gail Simone and Amanda Connor on, on a Spider-Man book. Yeah. That would be wonderful because it would be fun. It would not be miserable. Which I think, yeah. I mean, you, you need drama in there. You need things to go yeah. wrong. By definition, you know, being Spider-Man has to screw up his life as Peter Parker. That's the way it has to be. But at the same time, remember, Stan always had fun with it. Yeah. Now, now in this, this remit, you're allowed to bring back one really dopey character, villain from the run, and rehabilitate him or her. Rocket Racer. See, see, I had back back in my fan fiction days, I I had a a book outlined which brought back the Hypno Hustler. Yep. <laughs> the, arguably the most ridiculous v- villain Spider-Man ever faced. Disco villain. Disco. See, I think the thing with Rocket Racer is uh, skateboarding and roller skating has never really gone out of style. Yeah. So you could revamp that quite easily. And the well, the thing that I, I was working on with with the Hypno Hustler was the idea that now disco is looked upon much more fondly. Hmm. And just like yeah, make it make it be part of the Scissor Sisters or something. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what that's. And somewhere I know Chris. Uh, Chris from the old Spider-Man podcast that I used to contribute to is feeling very happy because we brought up the Hypno Hustler. <laughs> not the Iguana, though. No. No, not that. Uh, and, and none of the, What was the name of that, that character? Shade. That J.M.D. Mateus created? Not J.M.D. Mateus. Uh, Straczynski. Why do I keep getting them mixed up? See, I can only think of Ace that Peter David did. Who, who was oh, yes! Prince, was, basically. Was, was basically Michael Jackson, yes. Yeah, him. So I don't think I'd bother with him. I, I like the idea of a rocket racer. I think you okay. could do something with a skateboarding hero. A ha- have him face off against Night Thrasher. Yes. <laughs> oh, dear. For who has the rights to lead the new warriors? But anyway... um. Once again, since we're about done, until the next time Andrew and I have a conversation we decide we want to have posted for posterity, hmm. pimp your wares, my friend. Uh, Palace of Glittering Delights here on the Two True Freaks Network. Do whatever I want to talk about, and that's what keeps it fresh. Uh, Overlooked Dark Night with Michael Bailey is every whenever. We try to get together at least once a month, but obviously there's half a world, half an ocean between us. Uh, that comes out. We're currently wrapping up Jim Starlin's run. And that is more or less it. Everything else, listen to the prophets as we've finished, more or less. Right. Although new episodes will come out well into summer. So that's pretty much it for now. Okay, okay. And of course, you can 
find me on the Honeywell experiment. And once again, Andrew, I say if you have a, a, a movie you want to talk about on there, you are more than welcome to come on with me and Chris. Okay. Um, there is... What else do we have? I, I am a contributing co-host on Dread Media over at Earth2.net where we talk horror films. Um, and there is something very big coming around Thanksgiving, we're hoping. Really, really big. It's probably the biggest project I've ever tackled. Mm. And it will be fun. So, uh, keep your eyes on Two True Freaks, people. And until next time... Till next time, wall crawlers! Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I think I'm going to get a sandwich now. So, until then, keep holding your pastrami. What the fuck did I just say? I don't know. <laughs> but Good it night. sounds perfectly acceptable. <laughs> Good. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two, Two True, True Freaks. You want me to murder Spider-Man? The Kingpin is not a murderer. I simply want you to eliminate a civic menace and perpetual piss. <laughs>
You must be crazy. Yeah, call the kingpin crazy. Now listen, punk. You want to see the old lady alive, you'll do exactly as I tell you.